Welcome to Tisky Sour on a day when I am just completely overwhelmed by how much news is breaking as we speak. There is due to begin very soon a press conference in Downing Street. Boris Johnson, Patrick Balance and Chris Whitty will be discussing the new COVID rules or the, the now absence of all COVID rules and all support measures. It's going to be very interesting to see what Chris Whitty and Patrick Balance say. We're going to go to that when we get to the question and answers section because that's normally much more interested than, than, than just Boris Johnson waffling. We're also going live as Putin is giving a very long and rambling history lesson about how Ukraine isn't a real country. He has said he is going to accept or recognize the independence of two regions in the east of that country. So two really big breaking stories we're going to be talking about tonight. We also have for you an update on liberals in this country being sent round the bend by a New York Times podcast, which shines a light on their Islamophobia, and Epstein's BFF having died in prison. To cover all of this, I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. How are you doing, Ash? I'm very well. Thank you, Michael. I am just ready to get cracking on this day of breaking news. Boris Johnson was supposed to set out today England's plan for living with COVID. Instead, he delivered no plan and just encouraged us all to ignore COVID. Because of the efforts we've made as a country over the past two years, we can now deal with it in a very different way, moving from government restrictions to personal responsibility. First, we will remove all remaining domestic restrictions in law. From, from this Thursday, 24th of February, we will end the legal requirement to self-isolate following a positive test. And so we will also end self-isolation support payments, although COVID provisions for statutory sick pay can still be claimed for a further month. We will end routine contact tracing and no longer ask fully vaccinated close contacts and those under 18 to test daily for seven days. And we will remove the legal requirement for close contacts who are not fully vaccinated to self-isolate. Until the 1st of April, we will still advise people who test positive to stay at home. But after that, we will encourage people with COVID-19 symptoms to exercise personal responsibility. Just as we encourage people who may have flu to be considerate to others. From today, we're removing the guidance for staff and students in most education and childcare settings to undertake twice weekly asymptomatic testing. And from the 1st of April, when winter is over and the virus will spread less easily, we will end free symptomatic and asymptomatic testing for the general public. We will continue to provide free symptomatic tests to the oldest age groups and those most vulnerable to COVID. And in line with the practice in many other countries, we're working with retailers to ensure that everyone who wants to can buy a test. So a legal requirement to self-isolate will be replaced with guidance, but only until April, at which point you should go to work when sick. If you do want to do the responsible thing anyway and self-isolate, there'll be no financial support, but you probably won't know anyway as free tests are on their way out. As we expected, there were no announcements on ventilation or any other investment that could keep us all safe from COVID and other respiratory viruses. This is how Keir Starmer responded. Huge efforts have been made over the last two years 
And we would not be where we are today without the heroism of our NHS and key workers, those who pioneered and rolled out the vaccines, and the sacrifices that people made every day to follow the rules and protect our public health. We must honour the collective sacrifices of the British people and do everything possible to prevent a return to the loss and lockdowns we've seen over the last two years. The Prime Minister promised to present a plan for living with COVID. But all we've got today is yet more chaos and disarray. Not enough to prepare us for the new variants which may yet develop. An approach which seems to think that living with COVID means simply ignoring it. This morning, he couldn't even persuade his own health secretary to agree the plan. So what confidence can the public have that this is the right approach. Uh, Mr Speaker, we have to take the public with us and that requires clarity about why decisions are being made. So will the Prime Minister publish the scientific evidence behind his decision to remove the legal requirement to self-isolate, including the impact on the clinically extremely vulnerable for whom lockdown has never ended? Having come this far, I know the British people will continue to act responsibly and they will do the right thing, testing and then isolating if positive. What I can't understand is why the Prime Minister is taking away the tools that will help them to do that. Free tests can't continue forever, but if you're too one up with, if you're, if you're too one up with 10 minutes to go, you don't sub off one of your best defenders. The Prime Minister the Prime Minister is also removing self-isolation support payments that allow many people to isolate and weakening sick pay. These are decisions which will hit the lowest paid and the most insecure workers the hardest, including care workers who got us through the toughest parts of the pandemic. It's all very well advising workers to self-isolate, but that won't work unless all workers have the security of knowing that they can afford to do so. Moments later, Johnson described those fairly reasonable concerns like this. He asks about the clinically extremely vulnerable, and that's, of course, an entirely uh, reasonable question. But what we are going to do is make sure uh, that they continue to be protected uh, with with, uh, priority access to therapeutics and, of course, uh, to vaccines as well. He asks about about testing, Mr Speaker, which is absolutely satirical because week after week, month after month, I've listened to the uh, to the Labour Party, Mr Speaker, complaining about NHS testing, denouncing the cost, denouncing the cost. Did you not hear them, Mr Speaker? Denouncing the cost of NHS tests and trace. And now, now they want to continue with it uh, when, Mr Speaker, we do not need to go on with it in the way uh, that we are currently doing. So he asks about, he asks about our ability to to do tests or our our domestic ability to manufacture tests. It's as though he doesn't know, Mr Speaker, that we have in this country now one of the biggest manufacturers of battle flow tests uh, in uh, in Europe. Uh, Mr Speaker, uh, this is a a, a leader of the opposition who, as I say, has shown an absolutely ferocious grip of the wrong end of the stick. (laughs)
quite a good line, but you know, I don't know if he should have been joking about such a serious topic. Kirsten was asking about the clinically vulnerable who are at this point in time, understandably, incredibly worried because Boris Johnson is now saying, let's all just completely ignore COVID-19. If you're sick, forget about it, essentially. If you can go to work, go to work. Don't even try and find out if you've got COVID-19. From the latest available polling, which is from December, what Boris Johnson has announced in terms of scrapping free tests is not popular with the public at all. It's a very, very marginal position, but it's not a marginal position on his own backbenches. And I think we can see this move as a fairly cynical attempt to shore up his support because he's, of course, quite vulnerable as the Partygate scandal rumbles on. He's looking at what's going into Sir Graham Brady's inbox, and he's looking to beef up his support amongst those lockdown skeptic and, quite frankly, COVID denialist portions of his own party support. That's what this is about, plain and simple. It's got nothing to do with how you effectively shift into a phase of pandemic management, which you could plausibly describe as living with COVID. Because every measure that's been announced the weakening of self-isolation payments, returning to statutory sick pay only, which we know is set at an absolutely risible level in this country, and the scrapping of free testing, what this effectively does is throw income-poor people onto the mercy of the pandemic. We saw through this pandemic that you were at greater risk of exposure greater risk of serious disease and greater risk of death if you were in a so-called elementary profession, which meant you had high level of exposures to other people and also precarious working conditions and low wages. That's exactly the group of workers who are most endangered by this measure because they have a weaker position when it comes to taking time off work and they also have more limited incomes, which means that they're less likely to be able to afford testing, which isn't free. This also, once again, throws disabled people, even more so than they have been, on the mercy of the pandemic as well, because having priority testing for them isn't enough. It's like saying, okay, if you're disabled, you get to wear seatbelts or you get to abide by the speed limit, but nobody else does. If I'm not testing and I'm walking around and I'm completely unaware whether or not I've got COVID, I am more likely to infect somebody who is clinically vulnerable. So from a healthcare perspective, this is completely reckless. And from a political perspective, it is entirely cynical. And I'm afraid Keir Starmer's performance, some of his performances in the Commons have been quite good. This was a really lackluster performance. The concession of saying, you know, we can't have free testing forever. Well, why not? People don't pay for STI tests. I can't think of other tests for infectious illnesses which are charged at the point of use. So why can't you keep free testing? Absolutely disgraceful from the Prime Minister, and I think, unfortunately, weak from the leader of the opposition. Yeah, I suppose on that testing issue, because, I mean, watching the the address in Parliament today, I, I frankly thought it was completely disgraceful. It was just Boris Johnson saying, any support we gave you is over. We can't do that anymore. Just get used to it. Go to work when you're sick. You know, if you're clinically vulnerable, apologies, right? Essentially, that's that's what it sounded like to me. I do think, though, that my initial reaction to they're going to end the legal compulsion to isolate, I was like, well, that you know, maybe we have got to the point of, of the pandemic where that can be voluntary. But that would need to be combined with an instruction to bosses that if your worker wants to stay at home because they've got COVID-19, let them. And it was the precise opposite, actually, in Parliament today, because Boris Johnson was saying, essentially, unless you're really sick, 
going to work. That, that was the message that the public got from that. The same with testing, because I know you're saying, you know, I don't think the test should cost money, but at the same time, I don't think there are any other testing programs whereby you're just encouraged to take them all the time if you don't have any you know, particular risk factors, for example. So an STI test, obviously, is free, but you go to the STI clinic and you get it, or you go on the website and say, I've been in contact with someone with an STI, blah, 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 blah. So I think this idea that you know everyone's encouraged to take two lateral flows a week or whatever, I can see how we might want to move beyond that and have a more targeted testing system. But again, that's not really what Boris Johnson was describing. What Boris Johnson was describing was to say, look, don't bother testing, even if you're symptomatic, don't get a test. Why is anyone, when they've got a sore throat, going to go to the chemist and, and spend money on a lateral flow test when even if they find out they've got COVID-19, they're still expected to go to work and they don't get any support if they but want to self-isolate. But, so. but it's also, don't bother testing if you think that you've been exposed. So to use the STI example, you are encouraged to have an STI test if you think that you might be exposed, not because you necessarily know that someone's got an STI, but because you've had unprotected sex. You are encouraged to have STI tests regularly in terms of you know changing sexual partners. These are all things that you are encouraged to do. I think it's a false economy to scale back on testing in this way and to impose a charge. And I think that what this is about isn't thinking about how you move to that living with COVID situation where you have the right calibration of interventions, the right calibration of monitoring. It's pure COVID denial. I think also the problem here is that for me, the pandemic could have been an opportunity, right? Because I'm of the position that we need to move beyond a situation where we think of COVID-19 as this completely exceptional thing and we sort of separate it from all other public health issues. And we say, this is the, the, the disease that we have to completely get rid of and we have to completely transform our lives to suppress it. I think we've moved past the point where that's necessary. But I think what should have happened after this pandemic is to say, okay, we are going to have to live with this virus, but let's make the changes that will make us safer from COVID-19 and make us safer from all other respiratory diseases as well. So that's things like good sick pay. That's things like ventilation in all public buildings. I've seen people make great analogies to how sort of like the cholera epidemics encourage states to invest in clean water. And like, that wasn't easy. When people say, oh, ventilation, that'd be so difficult. I think ventilating buildings is actually easier than piping cities with clean water. It's just that our government can't be bothered because they don't want to stump up the cash. They don't want to intervene in the economy in the way that would be required. And that would not limit any of our freedoms in any way at all, but they just haven't bothered to do it. And why I find why I find it disappointing because I'm not that worried about COVID. I've had it before. It didn't affect me that much. I'm young. I don't have any clinical, well, I'm not that young, but I'm youngish. I don't have any clinical vulnerabilities, but even I'd prefer not to get COVID two or three times a year if I can. So I'd be in favor of better ventilation in, in public buildings. But the main thing is I think Boris Johnson should have stood up there today and say, look, we are going to have to change our approach to this virus. Vaccination has changed things. Maybe we will target tests more. Maybe we'll move away from sort of the legal compulsions. We are going to focus less on COVID now, but I'm going to bring you with me. And especially if you're clinically vulnerable, I'm going to bring you with me. And part of this trade-off is while we go back to you know, the, the same situation, even though I can't guarantee you're not going to get COVID-19. What I can say is you will be healthier than you were before this pandemic, because what we're going to do is we'll invest all this money into ventilation. So not only are you safer from COVID, you're safer from other diseases. We're going to introduce sick pay. We're going to, I, I, I don't even like the word radical because this isn't radical. This is incredibly moderate. We are going to restructure society. So it is more inclusive of people with clinical vulnerabilities as we go into the long term. And it was the precise opposite. It was basically, if you're still concerned about COVID, 
you're an idiot, forget about it. And what that ignores is that there are some people who are very rationally not over COVID because they have specific vulnerabilities if they're immunosuppressed. There are half a million people in Britain whose immune systems won't necessarily respond very well to, to vaccines, potentially because they're on drugs, because they've had transplants or because they've got other conditions. And they were told today, screw you, get over it. Yeah, you're going to be at more risk from dying now than you were three years ago, but we've got to move on. I, I didn't think Keir Starmer's response was that bad. I thought I didn't think it was particularly pithy, but you're more critical of everyone who was in Parliament today, you Ash. Well, I think so. Um, I also wasn't in love with the 10 minutes to go sub off your best defender line. It was a bit, no pun, laboured. But I do think that it was it was a weak defence of the principle of free universal testing. I think that that is a principle that we have in every other section of our health service. So it seems bizarre to me that you have this unique situation where testing for COVID is the only one that you have to pay for. Because I hear what you're saying about moving towards a scenario where COVID isn't this entirely unique disease. I still think in some ways it is because of the question mark hanging over long COVID, thinking about its long-term effects, how it is potentially different from other kinds of post-viral syndromes, still thinking about how long COVID relates to uh, Omicron, though there is some indication that you're less likely to get long COVID if you are vaccinated, which is yet another reason to be fully vaccinated if you don't have a medical exemption. But there are reasons why caution is still wise. I'm not one of those people who thinks that until you achieve zero COVID, you have the tightest, most restrictive measures possible. That's not what I think. I believe in mitigation, but I also believe in monitoring. And I think that what the testing policy is about is abdicating that responsibility for monitoring in order to please the headbangers on his back benches. It doesn't really have anything to do with all of us having happier, healthier and freer lives. Because like you said, if that's what Boris Johnson was after, it would be about investing in ventilation. It would be uh, about facilitating people to take time off sick when they really need it. It would be about bolstering sick pay provision for people. This is just about having your hands over your eyes, your fingers plugged into your ears and going, la la la, I'm not listening. In their defence, they are doing some monitoring. So there were rumours that the whole ONS sort of infection survey was going to get cancelled. They are continuing that. It's ambiguous as to, you know, how much they're going to scale it back. But obviously there are problems with that, which is that, you know, there's a two-week delay or whatever. The bigger problem for me, though, with that is, is they haven't said what they're monitoring it for. <laughs> so again, I think the deal you could have made with people who are rationally more concerned about COVID than someone like me is to say look, we are going to move away from a, from a situation whereby people always have to wear masks in supermarkets or, or XYZ other restriction that we've got used to living with. But if the rates of COVID go above this, we'll bring it back. So you can, you can be confident that when we're in a situation where people aren't wearing masks, your risk of catching it is not zero, it's not gone, but it is smaller than it would be. And when the, the ONS infection survey discovers that, you know, one in 10 people have COVID, obviously I'm just plucking the number out of in air now, then that's when we say, okay, now given that we're in COVID season, if that's what we're going to start calling it, maybe wear, uh, or not just maybe, you're, you're encouraged to wear your mask on the tube, you're encouraged to wear your mask in the supermarket. And I think that would be the sign of a society which was a little bit more compassionate than, than the one that we are moving into now, which is actually kind of less compassionate than before the pandemic, which is really, really depressing, you know, to think we've gone through this huge collective experience as a nation, really difficult. We all had to pull together and we've ended it kind of crueler than we entered it. Like that, that's depressing, isn't it? 
Well, yeah, it's wholly depressing because we didn't have a supportive healthcare infrastructure economy for disabled people before the pandemic. And now this framing of the ending of not just all restrictions, but also free testing and uh, the extra income support for COVID self-isolation, it is presenting any sort of concern for the quality of life for disabled people as being antithetical with, with, to freedom. So that's, that's how it's being pushed by Boris Johnson's ministers. They're saying, you know, we will be the freest society, our liberties are back. I don't feel much freer having to fork out five pounds for a lateral flow test, knowing that if I don't reach my hand into my pocket and do that, that I'll be endangering the clinically vulnerable people who are in my life. I don't feel particularly liberated by that. I don't know about you. Ash, before we go to this question and answers, which I think is, oh, it's here now. Responsibility. How can people take personal responsibility if they may not be able to afford to get a COVID test, even if they're trying to? And do you accept that you're giving Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales really no choice but to do the same because there won't be additional money for testing? And to Sir Chris and Sir Patrick, you know, many times you've talked about how a lack of testing early on hampered the attempts to save lives. Now there are enough tests, but the government is no longer going to fund free tests for all. I know you've both emphasised the need for good surveillance, but testing is being scaled back. Do you worry that in time that could prove to be a mistake? And just forgive me, Prime Minister, as, we've, as you've been speaking, President Putin has been talking. Um, could you respond to his claim to recognise the two um, separatist breakaway republics? Yes, uh, sure. So, uh, so thanks, Laura. Look, on, on, on testing, the, the only reason, and first of all, let's be clear, we're not uh, ending it, ending uh, free lateral flow tests now. Uh, the, the, there are several more weeks still to, to go. We won't, we won't do it until the beginning of, of April. Uh, we, we can only do that because of the reasons that uh, Chris and, and Patrick are, have set out, the, uh, the high level of, of, of immunity, uh, the, the, the relative uh, mildness of, of, of Omicron, uh, the, the low level of uh, num numbers of people in ICU uh, and, and the low mortality we're seeing. So that, that's the reason uh, we can address Omicron uh, in this way. But what we will do is make sure that there will be uh, people who continue to get uh, testing vulnerable uh, people will continue to to have access to testing and uh, to free tests. But the, the most important thing is that, and I hope this is the big takeout from this. Uh, it's the sun is shining, but we're keeping our umbrella, as Patrick said at the, at the end of this, at the end of, of his remarks. Uh, we we were going to make sure that we invest in in surveillance. And the ONS survey is, it really is world-class. It's a model around the world. Uh, it gives a lot of very granular data about uh, where uh, cases are, uh, are, are breaking out, uh, patterns across the, across the UK. We will keep that going. We will keep observing what is happening because we want to have uh, the, the, the keenest pair of eyes in the, in the crow's nest to, to watch for the, uh, the iceberg in the form of a new variant. And that's, that's the thing that's the thing we've really got to to test for, and uh, and the and the the, the big surveillance uh, tests are the way uh, to to do that. And uh, if we see something like that, then that's the moment to to get to uh, Patrick's point. That's when when we ramp up, and we we immediately go 
uh, back to all the things that we uh, have learned to to do. So we have we'll have a stockpile of uh, of LFDs of lateral flow tests. We we can we can make at least some of them already in this uh, in this country. We have the we have labs that will keep going, like the Rosalind uh, Franklin Lab, uh, mobile uh, testing units, uh, and so on. So what we want is to have a formula of, of surveillance followed by surge uh, if if necessary. But we, we can only take the, uh, the the strategy, only adopt the strategy we're, we're adopting today because of the success of, of, the, of the vaccines and, and the way uh, Omicron is currently responding. And sorry, on Ukraine. Um, I, I just to say, uh, I, I gather just as I came into this press conference that Vladimir Putin has effectively announced that uh, Russia is uh, recognizing uh, the breakaway republics uh, of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk. Uh, this is plainly in breach of international law. It's uh, a violation, a, a, a flagrant violation of the sovereignty and integrity of the uh, of Ukraine. Uh, it is a repudiation of the of uh, the Minsk process and the Minsk agreements. And uh, I think it's a very ill omen and a very dark sign. And uh, it certainly does not seem to me that it's, it's certainly uh, an indication, uh, yet another indication, uh, that things are moving in the wrong direction in Ukraine. Uh, the UK will continue to do everything uh, we can to stand by the people of, of Ukraine uh, with a, a very robust package of sanctions, as you know, uh, fortifying the eastern flank of NATO in all the ways that, that we have, uh, but also being one of the few countries to have uh, given the Ukrainians the defensive, I stress defensive, uh, weaponry uh, that we think is, is appropriate to their, to their needs. And uh, we will continue to, to, to think about what more we can do uh, to support Ukraine in what is clearly a, a very, very dark and difficult time. I know there was a question for, well, I, for you, Chris. In terms of on the testing, um, the, there are essentially three reasons for testing. There's surveillance, and I think the intention, as the Prime Minister has said, is to continue surveillance. There will be some modification to that, but the aim is to have a good surveillance system because you need that for policy decisions. Uh, the second reason is clinical, to guide treatment. Expectations continue that in the NHS. Uh, there are uh, questions about exactly how we did you do this in terms of uh, getting uh, antivirals to the people who most need them, and that's a key decision that needs to be taken over the next uh, period. Uh, and then the third reason, and this is the one that is being scaled back, but not yet, but will be scaled back, uh, is the is using them for control. But as the Prime Minister said, uh, as and when the surveillance shows you need it, uh, what everybody has stressed is there's the need to be able to stand things up again, if necessary, were there to be something that's severe enough to need it. So it's that third area where the biggest changes uh, will really occur. I mean, I don't think anywhere across the world where restrictions are being relaxed, you can have any other view other than that will increase transmission. So that is inevitable as you go back to normal life, that transmission risk increases. At the beginning, we just didn't have tests. We've now got tests. Unfortunately, we've got lateral flow tests, which can be stored and released very quickly. And so it's going to really have to be this rapid detection and response at scale in order to get testing into the right place, depending on what the circumstances are. And as 
Chris has uh, indicated, at the moment with Omicron, I mean, it's spread very widely. It hasn't caused huge numbers. It has caused some, and it has in other countries caused quite a lot. But in this country, it hasn't caused huge numbers of very ill people or deaths. If that changes, then obviously testing becomes more important. In the meantime, the testing must be there for people who need it. And that definition of people who are in that at-risk group <coughs> is critical for appropriate use of testing. Thanks. Uh, Robert Pesson, ITV. Um, a couple of questions. On Ukraine, recognition of Lugansk and Donetsk is a clear violation of international law, as you say. It's accelerating the breakup of Ukraine. Surely this is the moment to introduce additional severe sanctions. The time for waiting must be passed. Um, and on what you've announced today, a um, couple of questions. One is, after April the 1st, if you get COVID, will you isolate? Uh, secondly, um, you introduced, sorry, you, you announced today the end of the self-isolation support package, and within a few weeks, you won't be able to get statutory sick pay on day one you are making it harder for poorer people to do what you think is the right thing, which is to isolate if they get COVID. So, uh, fine, thanks, Robert, very much. So, on, on the, um, uh, the statutory sick pay issue, first of all, and, uh, and we will continue with the day one uh, payments uh, for the next few weeks, uh, but... I think after that, what we need to to recognise is that we're effectively dealing with a, uh, particularly in, in vaccinated people, with a uh, a disease that is that is like norovirus or uh, or flu or uh, any other infectious respiratory uh, disease, and people should uh, think about how they interact with others, and they should be uh, respectful of other people's health and uh, and, and behave. Responsibly, and that and, and that and that goes for any. That the point I'm trying to make is that goes for uh, for any uh, infectious uh, disease where which you, which you might be bringing into uh, into contact with people who uh, who are vulnerable. I think it, it, you know in this country, uh, I've often heard it said over the last couple of years that we uh, we have a habit of of going back to work or going into work uh, when uh, we're we're not well, and I, people contrast that with Germany, for instance, who, uh, where uh, I'm told uh, they're much more disciplined about not going to work if you're if you're sick. And I'm just I'm just suggesting that that might be the uh, 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 something we could we could learn. And as for me, I will I will I will I will exercise restraint and responsibility and try to avoid infecting infecting other people. And on on your um, your point about sanctions. Um, <laughs> look, uh, we have to see what exactly has happened in uh, Donetsk and, and Lugansk in the, in the Donbass area. Um, uh, what I have said before about the package of sanctions is that they will be triggered with the first toe cap of a, uh, a Russian incursion or, or Russian uh, invasion. Uh, but plainly what has happened is extremely bad news, and uh, we will be urgently talking to uh, our friends and allies uh, around the world, all of whom are, uh, are, are jointly signed up with us in this package uh, of sanctions, because it is, it is. I, I mean, I think you know, 
I think the drift of your question is right. It is becoming clear uh, that we're going to need to start applying as much pressure as we possibly can because it is it is hard to see how this situation uh, improves. We are obviously going to talk about Ukraine in a moment. First of all, let's talk about what was said there. I was a bit disappointed, actually, they didn't go to Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance on that second question there, who I'm most interested um, in hearing from on this. Very interesting from Chris Whitty there when he was saying testing, it's for free purposes. So one is clinical. What care does someone need? And what they're talking a lot about now is that because of these antivirals we've got, if you are in a vulnerable category, if you find out very early that you've got COVID-19, you can take these antivirals and that, that reduces your risk of being hospitalized. It's only by about 30%. So it doesn't remove the, the risk, but it does significantly lesser it. So he's saying, we still need that. Surveillance is one of the other functions of testing. That's going to be done by the ONS. And he says it's control. So people finding out they've got COVID and then not spreading it to other people. That's what's being stood down. But what he seemed to be suggesting is that it's very important that we can stand that up immediately afterwards, which to me makes it seem like he's only consenting to Boris Johnson's policy because we're looking at Omicron. And if we, the next variant is, say, just as dangerous as Delta, then maybe he'd support standing up testing, mass testing, mass asymptomatic testing, so that people can stop the spread of it. Whether or not the Tories would vote for that, I very much doubt. So it seems a little bit naive if, if the reason Chris Whitty is going along with this is because he thinks that if a more dangerous variant comes along, we can just go back to where we were. That question from Robert Peston is very good. <laughs> Would you isolate if you tested positive? Obviously, Boris Johnson doesn't want to answer that question because he doesn't want a headline. Boris Johnson would not isolate if he was positive for COVID-19. But also, if he admits that he wouldn't, or that he would isolate, sorry, then he's got to explain, well, why are you making it so difficult for anyone else to do that? And he is making it very difficult for anyone else to do that because it's difficult to find out if you've got it. If you have got it, you know, sick pay is now going back to the paltry levels it was. You can't get it on day one. And if you're on very low incomes, you don't get that £500 support. So I think he put him in a real difficult spot there. And obviously, you know, there was no way he could rise to that challenge. What did you make of, of those comments there, Ash? Obviously, people have been waiting a long time to hear from Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance on this policy change. What did you make of it? I think it shows a certain amount of political naivety that comes built into the position of being chief medical officer and chief scientific officer, because you're not really allowed to make an observation of the political horse trading that's gone into making this decision. And you also have to ultimately uh, stand by the government or resign your position. And I think that that kind of cliff edge decision means that they were perhaps a bit willing to believe the stuff of, well, we're maintaining testing capacity and we'll be able to roll it out very swiftly if a new variant comes along. For me, the basic criticisms of this new Johnson announcement still stand, which is you may not be clinically vulnerable, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to come into contact with people who are. The new antiviral treatments look very promising, but they don't completely eliminate the risk of hospitalization. So again, relying on these treatments to be enough to then shift the burden of responsibility entirely onto clinically vulnerable people to me, it doesn't seem justified from a clinical perspective. And then you've got the third thing, which is, do we want to shift towards a more German model 
of people staying home when they're sick? Well, the answer to that is yes. The thing conveniently left out by Boris Johnson is that one of the reasons why in Germany you've got much higher rates of people staying at home, taking time off when they're sick, is that they've got much better sick pay provision. He's framing it as a matter of German self-discipline, cultural difference, but it's not. It is a difference in economic and healthcare policy. So it's worrying to me that a line that the left often uses, which is look at other countries, is being pinched, but the economic context that it comes with is being booted to Rosie. Let's move on to the other big story of the day, which concerns Russia and Ukraine. In an increase in tension between Russia and Ukraine, Vladimir Putin has recognised the independence of two separatist-controlled regions in eastern Ukraine. The announcement follows a highly choreographed meeting of Russia's Security Council this morning, where Putin said this. Taking in mind the Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republic's heads appeal to recognise their independence and the Russian state's Duma statement on this theme. If Russia faces the danger of Ukraine joining NATO, the threat to our country will increase substantially. Because there is Article 5 of the Treaty for NATO Establishment, from which follows that all NATO countries should fight as one if one of its members' sides is attacked. So since nobody recognises the Crimean and Sevastopol people's will, and Ukraine insists that it is their territory, the real threat appears to be to us. That was Vladimir Putin earlier today. He has just finished now a 40-minute speech where he's given a very long history of Russia and Ukraine, suggesting you know Ukraine should never really have been an independent country anyway, and announced that he would be recognising the independence of Donetsk and Luhansk. Parts of both regions have been under the control of Russian-backed separatists since 2014. But of course, Russia recognising their independence is incredibly significant in terms of an escalation, as they are within the sovereign borders of Ukraine. There are also fears that any declaration could lead to war if separatists in either zone want to expand their territory to include the entire zones of Luhansk and Donetsk. That would mean coming into direct military conflict with Ukraine. Of the possibility, so this was before Putin announced that he would recognise the independence of these two regions, a former Ukrainian defence minister had said, those regions are regular towns where people live regular lives. Any attempt to occupy those areas would be direct violent aggression by Russia into Ukraine. There would be war, there would be some attacks, resistance, deaths, casualties, losses, and there would be trials against Putin as a war criminal. Ukraine has lots of weapons there and Ukraine is not going to give it up just like that. Why the hell should we? It's like someone comes to UK and says, now I think this town should belong to France. Obviously, it's going to be a very nasty process, dramatic and tragic. The legal consequences of that are exactly as if Russia go to Kiev. It's the same territory of the same sovereign state. Now, of course, the the ex-defense minister there was talking about those parts of Donetsk and Luhansk, which aren't currently controlled by Russian separatists, places where there are still, you know, Ukrainian army barracks, where there are still 
towns of people who are living under the authority of Kiev. And he's saying, if now, after Donetsk and Luhansk have declared independence, they want to occupy the whole geographical territory of Donetsk and Luhansk, then that will look, I mean, that will be war, essentially. Ash, your initial takes on this, everyone's sort of been second-guessing what Putin is going to do next. People were talking about, oh, he's going to invade the entire of, of Ukraine, he's going to overthrow the government, he's going to occupy Ukraine, and then he's going to occupy the whole country. I always found that a little bit implausible. Some media outlets are sort of presenting this as just one stepping stone towards that end. I'm not entirely convinced, but of course, what, whatever end this is leading to, it's an incredibly provocative action from Vladimir Putin. What's quite worrying about this latest speech from Putin is just how aggressive it is, number one, and also, secondly, how much of that speech could be seen to apply to many other republics who were formerly part of the USSR or close to it. So the things that he's saying about Ukraine, which is that it's not a real country, it was essentially created by the Bolsheviks, really should be part of Russia territorially, politically, culturally. So that same kind of despotic and frankly unhinged history lesson could also apply to Latvia, to Lithuania, to Estonia. It's something which for neighboring countries is going to be deeply worrying and ironically sort of makes the case for NATO membership of those countries, of course, um, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania are NATO members, which then kind of rebounds on this escalating conflict and what Putin sees as a threat to Russia's geopolitical integrity, the security of its borders, which is being surrounded by NATO member countries. So this is something which I think is a deepening and an escalation of the crisis is something which is really worrying. And the recognition of these two regions, which are currently parts of sovereign Ukraine, it does close down the room for what everyone hoped would be a diplomatic resolution to the crisis being led by Macron and Schultz. That doesn't necessarily mean that the war hawks that we've seen in the UK media are right or justified either, because I don't think anybody sees an escalation into military confrontation with Russia is a good thing either. It was quite striking to me that a couple of weeks ago, I heard a pro-war voice say, well, you know, if we're lucky, this could be Putin's Afghanistan involving Russia in a long, very painful, drawn-out military conflict, which ultimately weakens uh, the regime at home. Now, I've never heard anybody talk about the Soviet-Afghan war and everything that followed as a particularly good thing for the people of Afghanistan. Uh, it's something that hasn't stabilized a democratic government there. It's something which involved life expectancies going backwards, rates of literacy going backwards, de destabilization for the whole region. So I think the stakes are very, very high and the potential closing of diplomatic avenues Putin hasn't shut the door on them entirely, but it's certainly created huge obstacles for Macron and Schultz going forward. Yeah, there's no good way to spin it. It's scary. I mean, that point about the Afghan war, I think it's or the Soviet-Afghan war is very relevant. People say, well, well maybe, this is the, maybe this is the thing where Putin overstretches himself and, and his whole regime collapses. Up to two million people died in that war. Like It was incredibly, incredibly bloody. It was really, really bad that the Soviets went into Afghanistan and it would be really, really bad if Putin now tries to. I personally don't see it. I think this to me seems more like 
a bargaining chip or Putin saying, you know, I've, I've mounted all of this weaponry on the border. I've got to get something from it. So I'm going to recognize the independence of these regions. I don't see how he could think that he could occupy the whole of Ukraine, which is a country of 40 million people. You know, it's, it's a third of the size of, of Russia population-wise. So it's it's not like a tiny country compared to Russia. Occupying it would be incredibly, incredibly costly. And while he is using many of the sort of similar excuses that the West used when they went into Iraq, so today he suggested that Ukraine were potentially developing nuclear weapons, completely bizarre. He's also often talking about genocide in eastern Ukraine, which as far as I'm aware, there's absolutely no evidence of. He does seem to be making the arguments that would justify an invasion, but I, I still kind of think that what he's doing is, is bluffing. He's brought all of those troops to the border He's making all the arguments one would make if you were going to invade a country. But for me, it would just be so irrational to do that, that I think he is potentially playing, I mean, you can call it like the madman theory of diplomacy. So it's helpful for Putin if we believe he might invade the whole of Ukraine, because that gives him a few more bargaining chips when he tries to restructure or renegotiate the security architecture of Europe. I think also there is a big chance that all of this is going to backfire because there are a lot more people now who, who care about Ukraine than they did six months ago, which, you know, and, and there are a lot more countries who are now going to be desperate to join NATO because they see how, how aggressive Putin can be. The Queen has COVID-19. There's not much to say about that. Apparently, it's mild, good for her. But some of the coverage has been more concerning. In particular, this front page from the Daily Mail. Queen's COVID example to us all. There's also, um, we can go to some of the text from that Daily Mail piece. They say, the 95-year-old monarch who tested positive for the virus yesterday wants to fulfill a number of online audiences and telephone meetings this week. Only one event which was scheduled to take place in person is likely to be cancelled. Within hours of her COVID diagnosis being announced, the Queen issued a message of congratulations to the Team GB women's and men's curling squads following her medal successes at the Beijing Winter Olympics. She was also well enough to cheer on her horse Kincardine. As it romped to victory at Newbury, the Queen is believed to have watched the race on TV at Windsor Castle. Now, there are a number of things to say about this. Obviously, I think it's disgusting to say having mild COVID is something virtuous. Like, I'm pleased the Queen, as a 95-year-old, has mild COVID. That does show us how effective these vaccines are. That's brilliant. But there are lots of people for whom COVID isn't mild. And if they aren't able to work from home, or if, heaven forbid, they don't have a job where you can work from home, it's not that they should have followed the example of the Queen. It's that they're in a radically different situation to the Queen, right? So I, I thought that was incredibly, incredibly distasteful, that headline. Also, I've just read you what she was doing in her job. It's not a real job. They're saying she watched a horse race. It was her horse. And that's counted as, as work. And she has taken part in a couple of phone calls. It's not a job. I mean, look, she wasn't leading a quarterly staff review. She wasn't overseeing a loft conversion. Watching a horse race, other people would count as leisure time. So I think this kind of speaks to the collective delusion that is having a monarchy and a press that upholds royalist sentiment. It means that everything they do is seen as a kind of moral yardstick by which you measure the rest of the country. Queen works from home, you should stay working while you've got COVID too, regardless of how severe your case of the illness is, or indeed whether or not you can work from home. I always think it's really interesting the way in which the kind of minutiae of a royal's 
day-to-day existence is held up as being morally virtuous. I remember a couple of years ago, the Queen was pictured taking a walk outside and there was a breathless article saying, you know, can you believe she's out and about and she's in her 90s? And it's like, yeah, that's that's great. If she if she was my gran, I'd, I'd feel really happy about that. But the idea that it is some kind of moral characteristic that she's able to go about her daily life, I think is frankly bizarre. Imagine if we talked about anyone else in the same tones. Imagine if, if I saw you at a bus stop, Michael, I was like, can you believe it? Michael Walker at his ripe old age at a bus stop of all things, an example to us all. The minute you take a step back and you strip royal news stories of their mysticism and their sanctity and their deference, they're just really bizarre pieces of writing. I mean, even if they aren't royal, it's just I just feel like if you're very healthy and you're 95, good for you, fantastic. But, you, you know, that's 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 great. You're quite lucky. You don't have to say, oh, isn't it brilliant that she's 95 and healthy? What a morally virtuous person. Lots of people are unhealthy way younger than 95. And I, I mean, I think that deserves sort of compassion as opposed to just like, implicitly blaming people. Next story. One might assume that if a prime minister breaks his own laws, he should have to resign. But Boris Johnson doesn't appear to think so. Johnson has handed in his questionnaire to the Metropolitan Police, who will now have to decide whether he broke lockdown rules by attending Downing Street parties. Sophie Rayworth pushed the PM on how he'd respond if they did decide to fine him at home. You have handed in your questionnaire to the Metropolitan Police about parties during lockdown in Downing Street in government. What did you tell them? Uh, I absolutely uh, promise you, Sophie, as soon as I have something more to say about this matter, I will, I will do so. But I can't give a, a running commentary of any kind and uh, it, wouldn't be right for, uh, it wouldn't be right to do so. But, but if, as soon as I am able to, to say something, I assure you, you will be amongst the very first of it. But if the police find that you have broken the law, broken your own laws that you wrote, will you resign? I, can I just undertake to make sure that as soon as I have something meaningful to say about this, which will be at the end of the, the process, I will make sure I do it to, that, to you, to the BBC, and, and I'll, I'll have a lot more to say about this in due course. But it's not something that is being investigated. I'm asking you as a point of principle. You wrote those laws. You told the nation to abide by them. You went on television night after night and told them to abide by them. If you are found to have broken them, broken your own laws, I, I understand will you stay in your job? I understand the question you, you're, you're raising, but any any answer would be interpreted as a... Uh, a point of commentary about the process. I've got to, I've got to leave. It's a matter of principle, surely. It's not a point of commentary. I've, I've, I've got to leave. You, you, you must forgive me. I can't, I can't comment about a process that's currently underway, and, and I won't. It isn't, a, it isn't a process underway. It's something in the future. The police are looking at something that has happened. I'm asking you about something that is in the future, because yeah. once the police come back and they tell us what happened and whether or not you broke the law, whether or not you will be fined, at that I'm, point I'm you will have to decide. I would give you greater pleasure than to uh, you know, give you full and detailed answers to all this stuff. I genuinely can't because uh, we've, got, we've got a, a process underway. There is, there is, there is not, a, not a jot I can say until it's done. You could, you can answer it though. I mean, you're choosing not to. No, it I, doesn't prejudice anything. The police, there's, well, no, there's no jury involved. It's not a, there's not a court trial. It's, it's the police, it's a process and you have handed in your questionnaire. So that is done, but you're obviously choosing not to. Were there parties in your flat during lockdown? Can I just respectfully 
humbly and, and you know, uh, with all, I, I, I can't say anything more about this until the, the process You've is complete. You've said it. It will be, it will be complete. I can't say anything more about this while there's an investigation going on. That is just a lie. There, there is literally no single reason why you cannot say whether you would resign if you were found to have broken the law you set. Like, th that doesn't prejudice any case. This line he keeps up, I couldn't possibly comment on that. There is no one who is asking him not to comment on that, apart from his own press advisors, of course. There is no justifiable reason not to answer that question. Also, it's just so patronizing. Oh, don't worry, Sophie. When I, when I do want to say something, I'll tell you first. <laughs> Ash, I mean, you know, we've got, we, we've got new, new nations being recognized and, you know, dramatically changed COVID rules, but I still do find it notable and frustrating how ugh, disingenuous he is in every interview he does. Well, yeah, because the real answer to that question of will you resign if it's found that you bro have broken the law is, well, depends. Are you going to make me? And he can't say that, but that's the truth. He's going to go, well, look, let's just see, uh, you know, where my political capital is at that particular point. I don't know. Maybe we'll be at war in Ukraine. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll have, you know, fired David Davis out of a cannon. Anything can change. Maybe I'll have ditched Carrie and I'll be on a new wife. Maybe I'll have another son by then. Who knows? The future's a long time away. That's the honest answer. And that's the answer which Boris Johnson can't give. He can't make it a point of principle to resign if he's broken the law because in the court of public opinion, at least, it's very clear that he has. We'll see what way the Metropolitan Police fall. And he also can't say, well, no, I won't resign if I've broken the law because, you know, that makes you sound like a crook. So he's come up with this hot vat of nonsense just to fill the time because ultimately he wants to see where his stock is by the time that Metropolitan Police investigation concludes. We need you to interview Boris Johnson, Ash. I mean, that would be, that would be so good because I think if she'd said that, you're really saying this, aren't you? I think, you know, it would have been, it would have been like a, a more, well, it would have been more entertaining watch than, than Sophie Rayworth on, on Sunday was yesterday. Next story, we're racing through the mistakes. We've got so many. Close associate of paedophile Jeffrey Epstein has been found dead in his Paris prison cell. Jean-Luc Brunel's body was found hanged after he apparently committed suicide before facing trial on sex trafficking and rape charges. The 75-year-old was a close business associate of Epstein and was thought to be central to Epstein's sex trafficking ring. Off the back of a million-dollar loan from Epstein, Brunel had founded the Miami-based MC2 modeling agency. The agency was used to recruit underage girls who were then ferried to orgies in Epstein's homes in Florida and New York. In a 2015 affidavit, Virginia Dufresne said, Epstein has told me that he has slept with over 1,000 of Brunel's girls. Following the news of his death, Dufresne wrote, The suicide of Jean-Luc Brunel, who abused me and countless girls and young women, ends another chapter. I'm disappointed that I wasn't able to face him in a final trial to hold him accountable, but gratified that I was able to testify in person last year to keep him in prison. Brunel always proclaimed his innocence. The death of Jean-Luc Brunel comes less than three years after Jeffrey Epstein died in suspicious circumstances in a New York jail. In Epstein's case, the cameras monitoring his cell had apparently malfunctioned. In Brunel's case, he was in a single occupancy cell with no cav camera coverage. Speaking to The Sun, a source at La Sainte Prison in Paris explained this setup. He said, there were no obvious fears for the prisoner's health and he was not on a suicide watch, having already been in prison for many months. 
Brunel's unexpected death has raised concerns about Ghislaine Maxwell, who's pictured here. Her brother's worried she could face a similar fate. She faces decades in jail after being found guilty of sex trafficking minors. Following Brunel's death, her brother spoke to the New York Post. It's really shocking, Ian Maxwell, one of Ghislaine's siblings, told the Post. Another death by hanging in a high-security prison. My reaction is one of total shock and bewilderment. In an interview from his home in London, Maxwell said the family fears for her safety at the Metropolitan Detention Centre in Brooklyn, where she is being held. Ash, another interesting twist in this story. I mean, do you smell foul play? Oh, that's just very funny how this keeps happening. What What do you want me to say here? I don't have any evidence that there is conspiracy to murder these men in prison. I have no evidence for that whatsoever. Nobody, as far as I know, has that evidence working journalism at the moment. It would be a huge international story. Nobody has that evidence. But the two versions are that Jeffrey Epstein hanged himself. He took his own life and coincidentally, these cameras just malfunctioned. So you've got no evidence that he took his own life fully and with his own volition, no pressure, no coercion, no nothing. And his alleged associate, someone who was facing decades in prison because of the sheer industrial scale of his human trafficking, that he just happened to be in a cell with no cameras on him, single occupancy cell, and he decided to take his own life as well. That's one version of the story. There's another version of the story which notes that for allegations of industrial scale sex trafficking, and allegations which involve orgies, which involve multiple people, we have had a pretty strictly enforced code of silence. No new names being spilled other than by the victims, of course, but none of these co-conspirators have spilled the beans on who else attended these orgies. And I don't know. I just wonder if dead men don't talk. They don't talk. And that's all I'm saying. There's no way to there's no way to have this conversation without sounding like a conspiracy theorist. But I don't think that it is outlandish to suggest that there are very powerful, very wealthy people who feel that they're above the law, who have been immune from accountability, being held to account by the criminal justice system for very many decades now, who would rather keep a lid on their participation in orgies which involved minors and sexually trafficked and exploited uh, young women. I just, I just don't think that that's out of the realm of possibility. But I don't know a way to say it without, you know, sounding completely doolally. To be honest, I don't think, I think to most reasonable people, if you suggest that there might be foul play going on when, well, as you say, Jeffrey Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein was, I mean, to me, seems clearly foul play. Come on. The, there were video cameras that weren't working. In this situation with this guy, Brunel, you know, there weren't video cameras in the first place. So it's, it's not as obvious. It's not as clear cut, but we are seeing a pattern emerging. And there are lots of people who want these people dead. So... As I say, you're absolutely right. We've got no concrete evidence, or at least we don't hear that this was foul play. But, you know, if I was Ghislaine Maxwell, I would just be desperately saying, I am not going to speak. I am not going to speak. I am not going to speak. Hell, I'd just pretend to have forgotten everything. 
if I was Glenn Maxwell, I'd be like, I've had my vocal cords surgically removed. <laughs> like, they're gone. I'm not saying nothing. And you know what put me in the busiest fucking cell you can find where nobody sleeps? You know, <laughs> I want eyes on me at all fucking time. But then again, if I was Glenn Maxwell, I'd have just enjoyed being a billionaire enjoying all of that money that, you know, my father stole from a pension fund and not gotten involved in the sex trafficking of minors. So, you know, a real sliding doors you a, thing. You would have a GoPro in jail. She could have a sort of Francis Bourgeois thing <laughs> where she sort of wears a camera which is constantly on her and then it would be much harder to take her out if that's what your intentions were. You're you're not you're not allowed uh photography devices in jail or communications devices. Sorry. Well, why is that, Ash? Why is that? You've got to ask the question. <laughs> Maybe this goes very, very deep. All the way um, to the top. Let's go to our next story, which is about a fake conspiracy. This one wasn't real, but everyone pretended it was. So the, the other way around, uh, because the supposed protagonists were much less powerful in this case. A New York Times podcast has exposed the Islamophobia which drove a moral panic around a group of majority Muslim schools in Birmingham. It's called the Trojan Horse Affair and investigates how a fake letter led to the widespread perception that a group of Muslim teachers and school governors were part of an Islamist conspiracy. The podcast has been released to widespread acclaim, but as we'll explain, some in the UK media are losing their minds over it. We'll come to those reactions in a moment. First, let's look at the background. The scandal began in 2014 when Birmingham City Council received a letter in the post. It appeared to contain the details of an Islamist plot called Operation Trojan Horse to infiltrate schools in the UK and to seed extremist ideas in the minds of pupils. The council passed the letter to the Home Office and the Department of Education. A few months later, in the spring of that year, the letter was leaked to the press, where it sparked a hysterical frenzy of speculation, accusations and outright panic. The BBC reported that an Islamic takeover plot was being investigated. The Birmingham Mail warned of a jihadist plot to take over the city's schools. And the Telegraph warned of Trojan horse plotters' links to terrorism in Syria. There was a major problem with all of these stories, though the letter was a hoax. Nonetheless, a judgment was made that that didn't matter. There could be no smoke without fire. And the Department of Education launched an urgent inquiry into extremism in Birmingham's schools. Michael Gove was in charge of education at the time. He appointed a former head of Britain's counter-terrorism efforts, Peter Clark, to run the investigation. A bogus letter had launched a new front in the war on terror. In the end... The investigation found no evidence of extremism, terrorism or radicalisation in any school, but a subsequent Ofsted inspection would criticise some teachers for attempting to apply undue religious influence on their pupils. Given we are a country where denominational schools are seen as perfectly acceptable, this is a long way from the Islamist plot the media had warned about, but news crews still camped out in school playgrounds on the release of Ofsted's verdict. Do you accept there may not have been a Trojan horse plot, but there seems to have been a group of governors and male teachers who have wanted to perhaps turn this more into a faith school. That is effectively what's happened. Well, that's a very, very different issue from an extremist plot. And of course, the reason why we've got the national... But it's still a serious issue because that's not what is supposed to be going on here. But I think we need to first and foremost say that this was a serious accusation and we need to at least 
reflect on the fact that despite a dodgy dossier with no evidence found, a draconian But there are still very serious occurred. allegations. I mean, so, what on earth was a secular school taking a whole busload of, of children off to Saudi Arabia for? I mean, at taxpayers' expense. What's that got to do with British values? Well, in the same way for we went to France or Spain or anywhere else, no, no, the whole no, world, no. you can't, you can't um, say that, No, no, John. okay, come on. But but when, what is the justification comes, for taking a busload of children at vast expense, £47,000, to Saudi Arabia? What, 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 well, what British sure values are enshrined in Because um, I don't represent the school. What I've come Well, let me to ask you, what, 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 if, what, what, what is the... What's that got to do with a secular state school? What is that? Okay. What has going to any normal school going to any other trip? 99% of our children in this school are Islamic faith. They are Muslim children. It is chosen by the parents of what trip they would like the children to go to. And this isn't the first trip that was but taken. But this is not a faith school. This is not a faith school. If absolutely. the mosque wants to take them to Saudi Arabia, that's a different matter. But then why did Ofsted not? Them? Why did Ofsted not criticize this in the 2013 report? If Ofsted had made this crystal clear in 2013 report that we do not like it, maybe when I got ahead, my daughter went on this trip. This trip in 2013 was praised for its international links. The point raised by the parent in that clip was significant. The fact that schools catered to the faith of the vast majority of their students had previously been praised by Ofsted, who'd granted many of the schools outstanding status. It was only in light of the Trojan horse hoax that these practices were painted in a sinister light. Indeed, many were then put in special measures, and according to the spectator who depicted a young Muslim boy with a sword and Quran, students were being taught to hate. Given how huge this so-called scandal was and the massive impact it had, it might come as a surprise that barely any journalistic effort had gone into working out who was responsible for the original Trojan horse hoax. That was until journalists Hamza Saeed and Brian Reed took on the case. This is from the trailer for the Trojan horse affair. A leaked letter outlining a plot by hardline Muslims. The letter looked to be... Well, Hamza, you want to explain this part? The letter looked to be a secret communique between Islamic extremists who'd been infiltrating the city schools in a supposed plot called Operation Trojan Horse. The letter was bizarre, unsigned, incoherent, badly Xeroxed, yet still it sparked one of the biggest school scandals in British history. Government investigators descended on Birmingham. The country beefed up its counter-terror policy. By the time it all died down, schools were revamped, teachers lost their jobs, some people were banned for life from education. The fallout has been huge. Prime Minister David Cameron, as we said, is calling a special meeting of the government's extremism task force. The former head but what I always found suspicious about this whole affair is that this dodgy letter suggesting extremists were taken over our schools. Nobody ever found out who wrote it, or why. Remarkably, none of the investigators even tried. I'm on episode three of this podcast series so far. I'm enjoying it. Ash, I know you've listened to the whole of it, though, and you've also interviewed its creators. Can you, can you talk about the significance of this podcast series before we talk about the freak out from, from some of the people it potentially talked about? It's a hugely significant podcast. One, because it is a joint New York Times and serial production, and they have completely transformed how investigative journalism is conducted and consumed by a huge audience. And what their investigation does, I think, it's one of the first things that I've read uh, or listened to, sorry, which really gets to grips with how Islamophobia functions in British society. Because the podcast does 
three very important things. The first thing it does is that it puts together credible theory for how the Trojan horse hoax was put together and who was responsible for it and why. It's theory. You don't end up with a kind of deathbed confession moment, but it puts together quite a credible theory of how it came about. The second thing is throughout the podcast, you have this ongoing conversation between Brian Reed, who is a veteran podcaster and investigative podcast producer, an American guy, a white guy. And you've got Hamza Syed, who was a medical student turned journalist. This is his first news story and obviously is British Muslim rookie reporter. And between the two of them, you have this ongoing uh dynamic. They're discussing what good journalism is. Is it steadfastly neutral, steadfastly non-partisan, or does it try and reflect some of the experiences, concerns, and perspectives of historically marginalized people? So what's the relationship between impartiality and troubling dominant narratives? And that's something which goes on throughout the whole podcast. And then the third thing, and this is what I think has prompted the freak out that we're going to discuss in a minute, is that it shows in painstaking detail how this Trojan horse letter, which was very quickly debunked as a hoax by both Birmingham City Council and also counter-terror police, how it came to contaminate every subsequent investigation, inquiry, or examination of what was going on in Birmingham schools. It ended up kind of being Schrodinger's letter, at once a hoax, a fraud, and a fake, and also something which was taken so seriously that it could transform, in one case, a police investigation into some other hoax letters, which were part of an employment dispute at Adderley Primary School. And I think that this examination of how every level, people were willing to believe the most outlandish allegations. And they they suspended their disbelief. They did not do their due diligence on checking claims, checking the credibility of testimony. At every level, this failed to happen because the story was wrapped up in this clash of civilizations war on terror, deeply Islamophobic narrative around British Muslims essentially being a kind of fifth columnist within UK society. And it is that examination, which I think prompts the freak out that we're going to talk about in just a second. Let's look at the freak out, because while the podcast has been released to wide acclaim in the US and much of the world, in the UK, it hasn't. Sonia Soda in The Observer this weekend complained the makers had got the story wrong. In the piece, she accuses Brian Reed and Hamza Sayed of bad journalism and writes, the Trojan horse affair presents a one-sided account that minimizes child protection concerns, misogyny, and homophobia in order to exonerate the podcast hero, a man called Tahir Alam. In doing so, it breaches the standards the public have the right to expect of journalists with cruel consequences for those it uses and abuses along the way. Soda was backed up by some high-profile figures. Khalid Mahmood is MP for Birmingham Perry Bar. He tweeted at Sonia Soda, a sensible critique of a sham of so-called journalism by the New York Times podcast, a case of misogyny, bullying, and premeditated so-called investigation. No Islamophobia, just caught out. No 
hoax. At the time of the scandal, Mahmoud maintained that the letter really did indicate an Islamist plot, and he's apparently one of the last people still refusing to accept it was fake. He's denying it was a hoax. Janice Turner from The Times also weighed in. She called Soda's piece fearless and forensic and described it as another reason to cancel her subscription to The New York Times. Sonia Soda even got a retweet from one of the podcast's main protagonists, Michael Gove. That shows you how hard-hitting the leader writer at The Observer's journalism is. It's defending um, government ministers against those nasty headline chasers at the New York Times. Ash, what's your analysis been of the UK presses and UK politicians' response to this this podcast from, from the New York Times? Predominantly, the UK press response to the Trojan Horse Affair, which is the number one trending podcast in both the US and the UK at the moment, has been to ignore, to diminish the full implications of the podcast and to treat it as a piece of entertainment. Did you enjoy it? Did you not enjoy it? Well, the third thing, which is what Sonia Soda is doing, is smear. Now, I'm not saying that the Trojan Horse Affair or any piece of journalism is above scrutiny or rigorous stress testing of any of its claims. The problem with Soda's piece is that it doesn't dispute any of the facts. It tries to present a view of the journalism as being inerrantly untrustworthy. On Twitter, she sort of, you know, condemns by insinuation one of the journalists as being kind of violent, misogynist fantasist. And she also, throughout this article, refers to the reports which are discredited, debunked, questioned by the podcast, and refers to them as sources of authority. There's also a lot which is selectively left out of her piece. She talks about two whistleblowers called Sue and Steve Packer, who were teachers at Parkview Academy and refers to them as being credible and fair. Now, one of the things that the podcast shows is that lots of their testimony wasn't credible and it wasn't fair. Sue Packer, for instance, wrote an anonymous letter to Ofsted before she then wrote to the British Humanist Association, where she talked about the school as being subject to Sharia control. She made allegations that children had said that homosexuals should be burnt alive and thrown out of windows and that teachers agreed. Now, these were allegations which were not repeated in her letter to the British Humanist Association, which in fact she never repeated again. There's another core part of her complaint, which is that she was forced out of her job after standing up for a Muslim female member of staff who was subject to sexist discrimination. Now, when the podcast goes and asks this Muslim female member of staff, hey, is any of this true? She condemns this as completely nonsensical, completely rubbishes this woman Sue Packer's account. And there are all sorts of things which show that perhaps not all of their testimony was credible. It certainly wasn't fair. Now, that isn't what Sonia Soda engages with at all. So I think what this speaks to isn't a good faith attempt to stress test the findings of this podcast. And it should be stress tested. You know, there should be, I think, rigorous questioning of the podcast and following up on its claims and its theories. But that's not what Sonia Soda does. Instead, what she does is provide liberal, progressive cover for an Islamophobic conspiracy theory, which is, look, even if the letter is a hoax, you know what these people are really like. And any attempt to question that dominant dominant narrative should be viewed 
with suspicion. And there's one last thing that I'd say, which is I mentioned that this podcast presents what I view to be a credible theory or the most credible theory, which has appeared so far for the origins of the Trojan horse hoax letter. Now, as far as I know, and as far as Hamza Sayed and Brian Reed know, nobody has followed up on this theory. Nobody has asked the person who it is suggested wrote the letter or someone close to them wrote the letter. No one has followed up with this person. No one's asked them questions. They haven't been doorstop. They haven't been hounded with a microphone while at work. And they're still a head teacher at a Birmingham primary school. Now that should tell you something about Britain's press and its willingness to leave certain stones unturned if it allows them to maintain prejudice or a falsehood that they've been key in spreading for a long time. There are veils of silence which are dropped around certain issues. There are lines which are drawn and it effectively says, do not cross these if you want to be considered a respectable or a serious journalist. Now, unforgivably, to journalists at the New York Times and Serial decided to cross that line. And that's why they're being treated in the way that they are. And if you want to know more about this, Ash has a brilliant podcast out. Just search for it. It's downstream. You can tell by the title that it's about the Trojan horse affair, but you definitely should listen to it and you should listen to the podcast. The transcripts of the podcast are also helpfully available on the show's website, on the New York Times. So if you're someone who likes to go over details and to read them, you can do that as well. I really, really recommend listening to it. Subscribe to the Navarra Media Podcast channel on Spotify, iTunes, or, or whatever app you use. Ash, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you for having me. And thank you for tuning in tonight. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7 p.m. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.